so my favorite character in the entire Rocky franchise is Apollo Creed. And I think three is a great balance of Adrian, Rocky, and Apollo. The best of all the movies. For me, the only, I would say, and I don't think this is a flaw. I just think that he made a better choice to build Rocky and tell the universe of Balboa. Because Apollo is my favorite character. I wish he would have been given a little bit more depth. But in Rocky 2, he gets that depth anyway. Shut up, Pappy. Don't feel bad about me. I got my hand back, see? We've only just begun to White lace and promises A kiss for luck and we're on our of the town to your foes and your friends so push it along trails we blaze don't deserve the gong don't deserve the praise the tranquility will make you unball your fist for we put hip hop on a brand new twist a brand new twist with a whole heap of mystic so low key that you probably missed it but yet it's so loud that it stands in the crowd when the guy takes the beat they bowed so raise up squire, adjust your attire We have no time to wallow in the mire If you're on a foreign path, then let me do the lead Join in the essence of the cool I breed The cool out to the music cause it makes you feel serene With the birds and the bees and all those groovy things Like getting stomach aches when you gotta go to work Or staring into space when you're feeling berserk I don't really mind if it's over your head Cause the job of resurrectors is to wake up the dead So pay attention, it's not hard to decipher And after the horns you can check out the viper cabaret going and i've i have it on very very low volume but two ladies is a particular favorite of mine and that's what's happening right now <laughs> uh so do you want to do you want to start with cabaret uh i mean i don't think you liked it did you so it's not that i disliked it i think my experience was better after the movie and thinking about it but I know when you recommended it to me that you thought that I would be into it, which there were parts like thinking about, it, I, I kind of was, I think it was an interesting act that they pulled off, but what about cabaret do you love? Well, so first of all, I do uh, wish to point out that at some point, if you get the chance to see a stage version of this, I highly recommend that you do. Cause it's very different than the film. Okay. It's not, it's not good, bad or indifferent, different. It's just, different different you know very different <laughs> so is the stage better than the movie it's not better it's just telling a very different story cabaret the musical is much more of a 
there are like two couples who are trying to figure it out as the second world war is breaking out and some of the people feel forced to do something and some people feel forced to try to maintain normalcy even if they don't necessarily believe in what's happening but it's all they've ever known so they are trying to avoid the holocaust by being loved oh okay now that is uh starkly different than the movie it is and it isn't because it's a little bit there yeah to me the thing that i think is so like you you called out i think sally bowles and the embassy are like kind of evil like what is going on with them they are both just hungry for love and you can feel that as soon as her dad stands her up you kind of feel that she's never going to be by herself ever again she's decided if she can't be loved up close she will be loved from a audience stage okay and not to project or anything but it seems fairly obvious that the MC is a little pink triangle coded. <laughs> okay. And he, at the end, when he is performing for this group of people, is trying to say to them, I'm just like you, don't you see? I'm one of you, don't you see? You can't kill me because you love me. Okay. And he's holding up a mirror to them to make them laugh, but not with teeth to us as the audience, but not to them as the perpetrators. Because it's a self-preservation thing. They're just trying to do their job. It's all they know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sad and it sucks, but they've been in the pot too long to tell it's boiling. (laughs) Yeah. And that was something that I wrote kind of in my review that I think for the movie, I do appreciate the musical set pieces and dance pieces. Thinking about it like after the fact, but... There was kind of a point in the movie to where I was just kind of like, before I kind of like saw like the whole thing in totality, I was kind of wondering, so where are we really going? Like, what's the destination for our our protagonists? And I got kind of a little caught up in that in the moment. And thinking about it like afterwards, like their journey is, I don't know if it's a true journey necessarily. Like, I just think that them being entertainers and performers is where they are human. And I feel like we don't get anything deeply about them, I guess, maybe beyond that, maybe. And I was kind of a little, I guess, wanting more from her, if that makes sense. I mean, there is definitely more from her in the musical. But just from this performance, the thing that I love about it is that Sally brings this incredibly naked, stark vulnerability and, like, desperation. And you can feel it in every scene when she's not on stage, and especially when she is. Yeah, I think the vulnerability definitely plays out when they're, like, having that conversation in the forest. Yeah. And she's not getting nothing back from Michael Even when she is... I'm I'm watching the scene where she's dancing in the in the white dress in that beautiful drawing room, right? Okay. And he, she's like, "Dance with me," and he's like, "No." And you, they just cut to her face for half a second, and it looks like she is going to cry. Him just saying, I, "I'm not in the mood to dance," and she's like, "I'm performing for you. This should be enough. You should love me." Is so 
it's like off-putting in a way, right? Yeah, yeah. But it also says to me, like, that's why she stays. That's why she has nothing off of the stage, because all she is off of the stage is this pit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's never going to be full. Yeah. Some people are just like that. There, There isn't more <laughs> for some people. Yeah, and I agree, but it doesn't make me kind of learn for it any less, though. Because I think the moment that it said 1931, I was like, oh, oh, okay. I, I don't know about musicals in this 1931, but let's see where we go. And I think for Michael York's character, because he gets to express himself and what that universe means and how angry he is, I wish that we could have got even just a perspective from them that kind of articulated like what their actual emotions were. And I think for the MC in my review, I wrote, I, I posed the question a little bit tongue in cheek, but I posed the question is the MC really the villain, which I mean, he's, he's in Nazi Germany, so no, but, um, no, but he's, he's seen it before and he'll see it again because he's the omniscient narrator. God. Yeah, and the music definitely works to kind of communicate that shifting sand below their feet. And thinking back, I thought it worked. But in the middle of it, I was kind of like, we're getting a lot. We're getting a lot of music, but our our principal characters aren't in it. And I, again, like it was one of those things to where thinking about it after the fact, it made a bit more sense thinking about it and then reading other people's praise of the movie. And then I went back to look at certain scenes and how they played out. And I'm like, okay, I, I think what they're saying all makes sense. Well, it's interesting because in the musical, there is not there's non-diegetic songs. Yeah. So Sally runs out of money and she is trying to convince Cliff to live with her. Like, let me move into your apartment. And he's like, what will people say? And she she says, you know, like, well, when you write your book, you'll just say, like, I met this truly remarkable girl. And she's, like, really putting the hard sell on, right? And he's like, uh, there's only, like, one bed. And she's, like, basically, like, hey, we could fuck. <laughs> and I don't necessarily think that this movie suffers for that. I think oh, yeah. it would be a lot if it was just all musical. And I think that it takes away in some ways. But at the same time, I don't think they replaced it with something equivalently good. I still think it's good. Yeah. But I think that Cabaret the Musical is a five-star musical. And I think Cabaret the Movie is a four-star movie musical. Okay. But it's important. Fossil charity which did not land very well and they were like ah the people the people they don't want musicals anymore but Fosse was like right but like I know how to direct a sonic song and dance scene so yeah. we just the, their compromise was we're gonna make it a movie that has music because it's in a club and it feels like a compromise yeah I think there's a way you can do this that works I would say a, a tiny bit better than this but I still think, like, we get this amazing performance out of Liza Minnelli where, like, the way that even her eyelashes move 
tells <laughs> you about what she's feeling. The white, male, straight, like, up-the-middle guy, and the musical he's named Cliff, here it's Brian, has never really been the highlight of Cabaret. He uh, doesn't do much. Let's actually kind of talk about Brian in the movie. And it's so funny because when they introduced him and she had the question of, you know, do you sleep with boys or not? And he was like, no. I don't know. Well, so you know about the real story about like these actual people that are based off of? Yeah, I I have been in a production of Cabaret. I have read I Am a Camera. I'm very familiar nice. with Chris Sherwood. Basically, they took different stories from I Am a Camera and put them in the world of what was then Cabaret. Okay. So this story is kind of based off of other stories, as is the story of the other two, the the student that he, the two students that he has, the two English yeah. students, yeah. are taken from I'm a camera. They are not in cabaret. They were not in cabaret, and that's fine. What do you think about Brian's character in the movie, though? We love a bisexual king. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> oh God. Why are you saying oh God? I uh, the the song started. Which one, the Nazi song? That. Which annoyingly is very catchy. Hilarious. Uh, that was a really interesting choice to include that in this movie. That was a it's, swing. It's, it's in the musical too. In in the musical, Cliff, who's the Brian stand-in, and Sally go to this party, and it's very fun. And the the band kind of suddenly swings into it, and half of the guests leave, and Cliff leaves. And Sally is torn between this is a fad and it will never catch on and oh, what do I do? Kind of, you know? Yeah. And because she's incapable of taking anything seriously, <laughs> yeah. you know, she chooses to stay in Berlin and probably dies. Yeah. Yeah. If you take this song and a scene of everyone standing who believes and the people leaving who don't, there is no drama. Yeah. That it makes Nazism the background, which it's not. The point is that it's supposed to be in the middle of the nice scene of these two husbands lighting each other's cigarettes. This starts. Yeah. Because that's what was happening. Classicist assholes were looking at the Weimar Republic and how queer and weird and friendly to people not like them it was. And this is a direct response to that. Yeah. And removing that would be fucking cowardly. Yeah. You remember how in, in Casablanca, where they had the Germans kind of singing their song, and then we got the French doing their song, and this being this, like, powerful moment? I think they did it in this, and it's like, it's powerful, too, but in the other way that it's actually supposed to make you feel. Like, you're supposed to be shocked that and horrified that all these people would easily be indoctrinated to follow the Hitler youth who was singing that the song. So it, also, it, was, it was a swing, but it worked. It's also the first time you see them outside of the city. Yeah. And it's the first time you see them not on a private estate. And so it gives you that sense of how it moves inward. Yeah, for sure. It cuts to the MC and in some productions, 
he he comes in at the end and he starts like taking down the party while that song is happening. He he does. I, I understand the idea of keeping him in the club, and I think that's a good a good one. But at the same time, I do like that in some productions of the musical, not all of them, he's almost like a poltergeist. He's just appearing in weird places where he's not supposed to be and is knocking shit over. And he's the only one that's dressed like he's still at the club. You know, because it is meant to be, at least in the show, not in the film. The film is very different because, again, Bob Fosse, non-diegetic music, complicated. He's maybe God? Unclear? Hilarious. Um, I mean, well, he he did that anti-Semitic, like, dismount of that one song. That was... (laughs) I was wondering where the punchline was going, where the setup was happening, and then it slammed dunked right in my forehead, and I was like, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, and by the way, this was the first time that they actually used the original lyrics for this because they were deemed too vulgar in the initial production, so yeah. they used a different phrasature. Yeah, there were certain, I think it was in Germany where where they at least originally released the movie and they cut it out completely, but then when they broadcast on TV, they had included it back in, so... Yeah. Also, one other thing that's just a fun touch I noticed is that they use some of the cut songs, the diegetic songs from the show, are playing on Sally's phonograph. Okay, that's cool. Disney live-action remakes do this a lot, where they include musical vamps and pieces of the score from the Broadway show, but never the songs. And when they do it, it feels a little bit disrespectful. But in this, I love that, like, all the other sound drops away and Sally's phonograph is playing, if you brought me diamonds, if you brought me pearls. Like, it's so just put in as a piece of, like, loving set dressing. Okay. Instead of just being in there for fan service. This is kind of pre-fan service in that way. Okay. I started out asking about Brian. I totally pivoted midway. But what what do you feel about the Brian character? He's in the movie? he's he's the white bread used to hold the sandwich of everyone else together. <laughs> okay, yeah, just a bit. And that's what he's there for. Yeah, yeah. It's weird because I just had the the comment that we see how he communicates like the shifting time politically and he's good for that. But I think we spend way too much time with him. (laughs) Like, yeah, I think having, having him be like the main character and not like the audience foil. Yeah. Is kind of a challenge, but I also think that he acts really well and the performance is really good And, like, you know, I mentioned, like, I feel like I can tell what Sally Bowles is thinking by the way she has applied her eyelashes in the scene. I feel like I can tell what he's thinking by just, like, the way he holds his head. Yeah, I think Michael York is really good in this. Yeah, and even though I wish that we got to spend more time with some of the more colorful characters, I get seeing this man audition and being like, no, we gotta gotta give him more to do. Like... Yeah, his performance is good. It's just that 
I wish we got just more out of the other people there. I mean, because he's like, he's coming in. These people are already here. We don't really know truly why they're there in the first place. So, like, yeah, I we know love that. love how satisfied he looks when he, uh, you, you two bastards, and he just smiles like, you son of a bitch. You're <laughs> right. And then he just, like, fucking dips. Yeah. It's complicated, right? Because I think this movie is excellent and good in its own way, and I'm really glad that it exists. I almost wish it was doing its own thing because its inclusion of the stuff from Cabaret is, like, jarring sometimes. And also, we're now, with the exception of Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which, like, is technically a musical number, but I would not consider, like, a musical number... I would say it's been, uh, when was Money? Like, almost 40 minutes ago? (laughs) Yeah. Or no, I'm sorry, it was Two Ladies first. And Two Ladies was 25 minutes ago. So these long spits without musical numbers, it's a little uncomfy. Yeah. I haven't talked about really Liza Minnelli. And the funny thing is, I actually did think that, like, either Liza Vanelli has big cat energy or cat has big Liza Vanelli energy. <laughs> but there was a piece where it turned a bit, but in the very beginning I was like, oh yeah, this is Cat Jr. right here. And yeah. it was great. It was, it was great. Sally Bowles is a role that I've wanted to play. Oh, wow. Okay. I do not think that this film is necessarily the best indicator of that as they cut some sequences of hers but i also think that the idea of someone only truly knowing how to express their interiority on stage is very like that's all of this happens because of that yeah i remember exactly where i was like nah this isn't cat i know that from the movie it it kind of at least alludes to how poor they are but then when she like basically commits to being a gold digger and i was like no nah, i don't think i really dead in real life but i think the especially like that first like the first like 40 minutes like r- i would say right before maximilian comes i would say well <laughs> uh, no double entendre uh, before he is introduced in the movie uh i would say yeah that was um that was a big cat energy right there <laughs> I I do uh, love when the MC arrives as one of the the girls and one he's the girls, in the same yeah. costume as them in the wig and yeah, we also, see like, him ass first yeah Joel Gray is a fucking legend for this performance because like this is the early seventies Cabaret is seventy two he also does a Cabaret Muppet Show performance which yeah. I don't know if you knew about. I absolutely did not know about that, no. Speaking of Joel Grey, this year's Oscars for Cabaret is fucking legitimate. As this is the Godfather year. And in Best Supporting Actor, he beats out James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Pacino. Like, (laughs) and... But you, you know why he beats them, right? It is for this. It is for this, like, being brave in a way and and willing in a way that those performances while excellent are not yeah if you can get any of them to to wear tights <laughs> and hold a tune <laughs> yeah but also i think this movie does such a great job of intercutting 
their little like burlesque number with this horrible thing that's happening to that of the the woman with the dog. Oh yeah, yeah. And not what you want. No, and, and it just shows you how you notice the numbers start getting more percussion heavy as you get towards the end of the movie, you know, and all of these other little things, they start getting physically darker in the club. You start seeing all these little cracks, right? Yeah. And then while we're seeing that, suddenly Sally and Cliff are outside a lot more. It's really <laughs> yeah. bright. And it, you know, it it just goes to show that, like, again, it comes in in these weird ways. It comes in, in these cracks. If your whole life is in the club and in the country and in a private estate, you might never even notice. Yeah. And that's uh, a message I think that it probably should tell more people now. Hilarious. Absolutely. And I feel like in the 70s, it was pretty universally agreed upon that, like, mm, Nazis are bad. See? <laughs> my, oh, my. Times have changed, haven't they? Well, it was recent enough that everybody knew somebody who saw something terrible. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. I would argue South Pacific is another one, not to keep talking about musicals, but they have a song called You Have to Be Carefully Taught, which is sung by a white man about how he was taught racism. Okay. That song is about how insidious it is. Yeah. And how it comes from people you love and places you trust and whatever. But she I, loves I, the idea of the baby because she loves the idea of being loved unconditionally. And then she has to think about the work and she doesn't love work. Yeah. You know, and you just see how this is while the MC is seeing the bigger picture on a cycle we the audience are seeing her on a cycle. Cause you know, this is going to happen again. If she doesn't die, you know, this has probably happened before. Yeah, man. I think there's they're... also a lot of, messaging about how some people can't be saved which is a uh, an ongoing motif in bob fossey's work in this essay i will coming down the eye representing the hyphen podcast group they are the unbeatable team Oh, B-hyphen. I'm just saying, you worked yourself into a shoe to answer the question. Handsome Bane. My, my firm belief is a DDT should beat anybody. Showing mad love. Rude of me this, Batman. If two go in the pink. Uh, the novelist. Man, catch Eddie. This is Brock what Brock Lesnar thinks he looks like if Brock Lesnar <laughs> were a beautiful woman. They are the Wrestlecast Power When you came to make all that jazz, what sort of film had you in mind, first of all? The successful one. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, the history of it is, is odd because I was in the hospital myself and, and had been ill. You had a heart attack, and you was I had a heart attack and open heart surgery. And I became very interested in death and hospital behavior and the meaning of life and death and those kinds of subjects. And so I started working uh, with a friend of mine 
a writer by the name of Robert Allen Arthur on uh, the uh, screenplay of a, of a novel called Ending by Wilma Holliser. And it was about dealing with death. And it was, this particular one was about a woman whose husband was dying and her problems with the children, uh, her problems about money, her, her sex problems, etc. And it was a, we got a screenplay, and it was a beautifully written screenplay, but it was, it was just so down. And I, every day I would go to work and I'd say, it's a lovely piece of material, but I've got to spend a year and a half with this to two years, and I don't think I can face this kind of material. It was real, what we used to call kitchen drama. You know, it was very heavy. And I said, I like the subject, and I would really like to do something in the same area, but with what I, the tools I could use best, which is song and dance. And How would you yourself describe what you did in the opening sequence of all that jazz? Well, I tried to use uh, a documentary style, first of all. Uh, and it is what my life has been since the time I was 25 years old. It's been those sort of auditions uh, that I refer to as a cattle call. And I've seen many film auditions of one kind or another, acted in a few films that had auditions. In, and they've been so unrealistic that I tried very hard to show an audience exactly what happened. They say that I won't last too long on Broadway. I've done it in a very stylized way because I can't spend that much time. And it was... Uh, tantamount to show what Roy Scheider did, what his occupation was, and the way he handled people, and how sometimes, how many no's he had to say, and how the few yeses he had, and how he was gentle with people. And uh, those are the kind of things that have been part of my life for, for a long, long time. I already kind of talked a little bit about Joel Gray winning Best Supporting Actor. So Cabaret holds, I guess, I don't know if this is dubious or not, but it holds the record for the most wins without winning Best Picture. Even though it was nominated for Best Picture, it won eight awards at the 45th Academy Awards. Bob Fosse has been a man with a chip on his shoulder his whole life. And I think not winning Best Picture puts a chip on the chip. He, he won Best Director, and Liza won Best Lead Actress for this. Well, yes, but that's not enough. He, <laughs> Is he, it ever enough? Is it ever he enough? started getting fucking paranoid about seeing Coppola on his sets after this loss. Mm. The way in which not winning Best Picture like kind of ruined him in a way is what gave us all that jazz, which is great, and I'm glad we got all that jazz. But, like, is probably also maybe what gave him a heart attack, which is <laughs> also what gave us all that jazz. So cool, but, like, also bad, so not cool. Uh, yes, uh, stress is not good. Uh, I think we can deduce stress is uh, very not good at all. Speaking of all that jazz, so it was nominated for Best Picture. He was nominated for Best Director. He was also nominated for Best Screenplay. And this is just another, the 70s are fucking insane. So this is like Kramer versus Kramer, Apocalypse Now, Norma Ray, China Syndrome. Like, the 70s are just nuts. Um, but he did not win for those awards. Roy Scheider, he got nominated for Best Actor. He lost to Dustin Hoffman for Kramer versus Kramer. We can talk about the Roy Scheider performance in a second, but I think that is maybe the most important performance ever. 
<laughs> in, and in, okay. I wish it had meant more variety for his career. Uh, I mean, it was immaculate. Like it was an immaculate performance from him. Like without a doubt, hey, Kramer versus Kramer. That was. I just think that I'm, I'm not was saying so he should have won the Oscar necessarily because I, I don't know enough about the other movies to know. But what I can tell you is I wish that it had meant more things for Roy Scheider. <sighs> yeah. Well, we got to talk about the like, ages in Hollywood at that point. So it's like it's it, it's kind of a it's kind of a tricky kind of proposition because I just think ultimately you're right, but then the '80s come. The '80s are just not a good movie decade. Like when we did an entire season on the cocaine '80s, and <laughs> a lot of people didn't make it out. A lot of people did not make it out. Like. I think the best thing, I don't even know if he was, oh, he was a narrator in uh, Mishima, which that movie is apparently incredible. I Love 2010, which is the sequel to 2001, but the 80s just was not a good decade for movies. It just wasn't. I will also say, just while we're still on the, the Oscar beat for a second, in Fosse's acceptance speech for best director at 1973's Oscars, he says, being characteristically a pessimistic, uh, a pessimist and a cynic, this might turn me into some sort of hopeful optimist and ruin my whole life. Hilarious. Which, like, what an insane person. Um, <laughs> Hilarious. And also, I cannot recommend Bossy Verdon on, I think it's on Hulu. It, it was on FX originally. Enough. If you were curious about the insanity happening here, because it's so good. So, yeah, I mean, the seventies were just everything. Like, like I think, I think the biggest thing that I've just sort of learned, just in the last like five years, just seventies were just everything. Like, like the seventies were just incredible, this incredible time for like movies and art and. The cocaine almost derailed all of that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. But all that jazz. So on your letterbox, you gave all that jazz five fucking stars. Sure as shit did. Bitch, I'm telling you the truth. Which I'm not going to lie. Shout out to YouTube and shout out to Illegal Links on YouTube. If I would have watched this in even just like 720p <laughs> i probably would have had a better experience it's not streaming on criterion which that's not what you want either um, you can buy it though they have it on on criterion which is how i watched it thanks greg love you yes you can buy the physical copy i don't think the barnes and noble near me had it but even still it is the same way that i recommended buying an unburned woman and I would recommend buying Girlfriend. I would definitely just buy just blindly all that jazz. I only watched it once, so I gave it a four and a half. Well, that doesn't mean anything. I watched it once, comma, space. I gave it a four and a half. And I think this is probably a movie that if I watched just like probably one more time or two more times, I would probably give it five stars. It's pretty insane. I watched it first. So I watched all that jazz first. And... I wasn't prepared of how dark it would be, but also incredibly funny and incredibly energetic. And 
I don't know if that's my fault or not, but I mean, it could be. <laughs> but uh, I underestimated the movie for some reason. Like, I thought it would be a good movie because I've heard just like about it and I thought it'd be good, but this shit is kind of next level, man. Like, this shit is dope. It's so good. Did you think my review was funny? Because I thought it was funny. Hold on. Let me see what Cachinetti wrote on the Letterbox app. Yeah. Um, the oh, last. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ethel Merman feels good. <laughs> Ethel Merman feels good in a place like this. A body bag. <laughs> I think I read it before I watched the movie. Um, I didn't. I didn't circle back. That is my maybe my favorite needle drop in a film ever. <laughs> so this sounds like one of your favorite movies of all time, Kat. God, Bob Fosse was such a bad man, but goddamn if this is not like a perfect fucking movie. <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, but, so I, was he? I wish to be angry at you, Bob, but I'm not. So was he living this life for real? Was he just like running through stagehands and all this? So um, the girlfriend was played by his real life mistress. Oh my. And he made her audition. You know what, Kat? That's hard, but I respect it. <laughs> I also feel like that's kind of you're like did he was he really about that life? And like I feel like I say that he, and you're just like yes he was. He like was. that gives you everything, doesn't it? He was about that life, buddy boy. And she's fucking hot. God damn. Good, good, good job, Bob. Good job. But, but you know. He's married. Yeah, 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 right? Was married. Oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> RP, sorry. <laughs> but what are the things about all that jazz do you love? First of all, I think it's very rare that we get a quote-unquote peek behind the curtain that is also about something. Yeah. Uh, But what it's about changes so much and is so wild from thing to thing. So, like, mostly, obviously, it's about Bob Fosse right after his heart attack being like, I wonder what would happen if I died. Yeah. And also Bob Fosse being like, I wonder if I can be a charming womanizer out of dying. (laughs) And also Bob Fosse being like, I can't die because I have so many projects that I have left to do. And also Bob Fosse going, fuck you, chorus line. I'm going to do a chorus line in four minutes with very few lines better than any of you motherfuckers did chorus line. And I should have won the Tony in in this essay, I will. (laughs) And it is... All of the chips on all of the shoulders align to make this, like, perfect machine. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's a draft of the script where he didn't change anyone's names, so everyone is just called who they are. Oh, really? Like, in real life? Yeah. Yeah. He sold the movie based on, like, Joe Gideon being Bob Fosse and... Like John Lithgow playing Hal Prince. Damn. Uh, you know, John the John Lithgow like scenes like that diner scene, that was so hard. That was so heartbreaking. Like that shit was ooh, that was nasty. 
He must have hated his fucking ass. <laughs> oh, shit. Your boy, Stanley Kubrick, who, again, he's, he's popping up on this show as a, as a uh, third guest of the show. He, Kubrick. He stated in 1979, <laughs> all that jazz was the best film I think I'd ever seen. <laughs> like... And I, I guess I agree with him for once. I mean, this this movie's hard, man. Like it is so rare that you see a director who takes themselves so seriously, so publicly eviscerate themselves. Yeah. Yeah, he took the blowtorch too. If he had any like image or persona, like he took a blowtorch to it, like for real. But like he did. He was still being the guy he was making fun of on set for this movie. Okay, well, yeah. And, like, and so then, like, there was a switch, right, where he wrote the script about, like, Bob Fosse. But it wasn't him, Bob Fosse. It was Bob Fosse. (laughs) Yeah. And then he was, like, they tried to cast all these different actors. Like, apparently Gene Hackman was in talks at one point, like, all of the guys of the 70s were, like, being looked at for this at one point, right? Yeah. And Scheider's like, I can do this. Just let me do this. And he read for it, and everyone's like, okay, he can do it. But he can't sing, and he can't dance. <laughs> like, he is he is the white person. That, he doesn't even clap on one and three. Like, he's Hilarious. he is so far. The rhythm is not rhythming. Everyone else said no. They have Scheider come in. Scheider reads. Scheider's like, I got this. It's going to be great. And everyone was like, yeah. Yeah, you're really great, except for the fact that you can't do two thirds of the role. Uh, <laughs> they and hit he's it. Though. Like, well, you know the scene where Fosse, like, like Gideon says, "I can't make you a good dancer, but I can make you a better dancer." Yeah, that's apparently quite directly what Bob said to him, and he started going over to Bob's apartment multiple times a week to fix this role while he's editing this other thing, while he's putting together the choreography for Chicago, while this whole other life is happening, he's also doing this. And all of that kind of bakes down into this performance because he got to spend a ton of time with this person doing this this way. Yeah. So he was tap dancing in a strip clothes when he was a kid? Yep. It's kind of wild, boy. That is kind of wild. But also, like, the way in which he just, like, told on himself. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I don't want to say he made it seem charming, but I could totally see how he could spin that. Oh, yeah. So I I have all that jazz on, and I'm in the first scene with Ben Vereen. And one time, massive Ben Vereen cameo. Did not see this coming. Ben Green, who starred in Pippin, by the way, a show Bob Fosse choreographed. Nice. And the final number in this movie is pretty fucking incredible. It's really spectacular. What can I tell you about my next guest? 
This cat allowed himself to be adored, but not loved. And his success in show business was matched by failure in his personal relationship bag. Now, that's where he really bombed. And he came to believe that work, show business, love, his whole life, even himself and all that jazz was bullshit. He became the one uno game player uh, to the point where he didn't know where the games ended and the reality began. Like this cat, the only reality is death, man. Ladies and gentlemen, let me lay on you a so-so entertainer, not much of a humanitarian, and this cat was never nobody's friend. In his final appearance on the great stage of life, uh, you can applaud if you wanna, Mr. Joe Gideon. And you know, the funny thing is, like, so I do think that for this last, like, year, like, the last, like, calendar year, I've just been, I, I finally seen the light when it comes to musicals and performances like this. And I do wonder if I had watched, like, this movie in my mid-20s, like, would I have, like, truly, like, seen it or not? I really don't know, but for some reason, it makes me enjoy it a lot more now because... I kind of have the bullshit out of the way and I can kind of just enjoy what the movie actually is and not be like hung up on some dumb, whatever I was getting away from. And Charlie from an unmarried woman, he's in this movie as a shitty stand up comic. <laughs> I just saw his face now. <laughs> he, Oh my God. I'm editing that fucking movie. Like, Oh my God. He's, <laughs> Nah, this movie is this movie's dope, man. This movie is really lit. This is really, really lit. Other than like Seven Samurai, it's probably the best movie I've seen this year so far. It's also just like it's kind of hard to talk about in a way that doesn't like I don't want people who haven't seen it. Oh yeah, because you can easily spoil this movie. Yeah, I think I think all the jazz also, is like, the end is. I don't want to say it's the best part, but, like, I can't remember who it was, but some big 70s guy said, I'll do it if he doesn't die at the end. And Bob Fosse <laughs> started screaming and swearing at him. Like, you motherfucker, that's the whole point! That is the whole point. That is the absolute whole point. <laughs> I mean, you, you know my favorite dancing in this movie, Cat. Like, you... Well, the, the end is obviously a spectacular dismount. I love dismounts, but... You know my favorite dancing in this movie. <laughs> oh, what? you know, funny, I was watching it and I was like, I said to myself, that's a ballsy choice, unironically. And I caught myself for that. That shit was hard body. It was hard. So it didn't win Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor. But I know you said you hadn't seen the movies from that year. Kramer versus Kramer, that was just, it was just a wave. Like, it was just, I don't even know what to compare it to now because we don't have, like, dramatic movies anymore that it's, it's, Kramer versus Kramer is just about two divorcees going at it. And it's, it's two divorcees and their kid. And that's the movie. 
and it was this massively popular movie. I can't think of the last drama that it was basically three actors and it was like mega popular in the way that Kramer versus Kramer was. I can't even think because like even from last year, like movies like Past Lives or like All of Us Strangers, where it's very little cast and very high dramatic stakes, they were popular from like the movie crowd perspective, like like film fanatics perspective. But it would be really hard to just go to your local Target and just ask a person, hey, what do you think about past lives? When, like, Kramer versus Kramer would be like, you could talk to anyone about that movie. Kramer, sorry. No, I'm, I'm just watching the cabaret final performance and I'm all up in my feelings. <laughs> so is it um, Liza's final one? Yeah. She really when gave I it all. Go, I'm going like Elsie. It's just such a, like, because oh. like that's where she's learned to to not be in a situation she can't control the only difference is that she thinks that she can she'll be able to survive the, uh, sorry I, I know we're done with this but like she'll be able to survive the the trend of nazism which i mean <laughs> we're trying to do that in 2024 which uh Ugh, it's really not what you want. It's really not what you want. The, uh, the thing to me that I, I loved so much about all that jazz, besides all of it, is, like, his relationship with his daughter really, like, feels like something. The way that he interacts with that one chorus girl, I, I need to know how your body moves, is, like, <laughs> yeah. it, all, it all feels like something, which I know is not, like, helpful and if you're determining to watch this movie or not (laughs) but if you are wondering if a objectively bad person can make a great movie about basically that same bad person the answer is yes and it's all that jazz yes but like it was so funny because i knew a little bit more about what was going on in fossey's life at that time because i am a dark hilarious so greg was like oh yeah i think like uh, New York, LA, the musical they're working on is like a takeoff on, on Chicago. And I was like, yeah, a little bit, but mostly they're doing Pippin. And he's like, what the fuck is Pippin? And I was like, pause the movie. Like, Hilarious. I'm making you watch the opening of Pippin. And then we watch the opening of Pippin. And he's like, oh, that's Ben Vereen. Like, he's in this. And I was like, yeah, because <laughs> they met during Pippin. Hilarious. That's funny. <laughs> Imagine watching a movie, pausing to watch another movie. Uh, Pippin is a Broadway musical that has had no film adaptation. Thank you so much. It hasn't? No. Isn't At least the, not one that's, like, legitimate. Isn't that the next thing he directed after all that jazz? It was the fr- last thing he directed after Cabaret, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. My bad. It's okay. But, but the, that... the hands... The kind of layers of hands that happen at that one scene where they're all lit from below... That is directly lifted from Pippin. I also do have a Pippin poster from the 2013 revival in my apartment. Cat. Cat the nerd. I love it. Yeah, he passed in 87. 80, the 80s took everyone out. Holy shit. I guess ultimately, from your perspective as a uh, Fawcite, <laughs> what is your... what is the and, last... and a fossil, please. There it is. There it is. What do you think 
his lasting legacy is. So we have so as someone who studied his career, we just watched two of his movies, but you've just been engrossed in more than just these two works. So what do you think that his career says about himself, but also just theater and movies in general? So he always wanted to kind of be a Fred Astaire type, right? Like initially they didn't get Joel Grey or the cabaret movie. And he was like, I guess I'll just do it. And they're like, nobody wants that. And like, he tried to do that a lot, right? He tried to get, get himself in there. Right. He, he wanted to be uh, the guy. And um, in a lot of ways, he really strikes me as the opposite of Fred Astaire. Where Fred Astaire is all of these movements. They're very fluid and they seem relaxed, even though you can tell they're very choreographed. (laughs) Fosse is very tight and choreographed and move, 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 shoulder, shoulder, hip, hip. His lasting legacy is that people say Fosse and people immediately move their hands. (laughs) Hilarious. You know. Or they snap in that way. They do in Chicago. At the end of the day, that is what his legacy is. Not only is it a movement style, but it's also the way we do costuming. Okay. And the way that we costume our dancers to fit their dances. He has a huge legacy of being ahead of his time, which I think is is very well deserved. But also, he has a legacy as... The guy from all that jazz that takes all the meth um, and always has a cigarette in his mouth and is always drinking that white wine and is always sleeping with at least a few chorus girls at a time because he needs to see how their body moves. (laughs) Jesus Christ. And, you know, that's a a complicated legacy. Yeah. Uh, And I think the first half of that legacy is for the casuals, right? Yeah. Like, someone, if you mention Fosse offhand, might be like, oh, Chicago, oh, Pippin, oh, Cabot. Like, there might be something that kind of connects in their brain that Fosse does. But I also think that there is, for, for people who know more about theater, who know more about movies, who, you know have read a lot about that. There's also a lot of, it's mostly the damage. Okay. I won't even say the damage. I won't say mostly the damage, but it's a little bit more of a, a complicated legacy than it is. But like the Chicago revival, it still has him listed as the original choreographer for hot honey Raz and a choreography consultant. And that opened in 1996. The Pippin oh, wow. revival that opened in 2013 has him listed as as a choreography consultant. Okay, okay. You know, a lot of his contribution is it's how to succeed in business without really trying. It's damn Yankees. You know, it's so many things that, you know, it's, oh, it's so good. Uh, you know, it's it's whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. Even if you're not a musical theater person, you know one song or one thing that he put his finger in because everything that he touched, for better or for worse, became iconic. And unfortunately, the chips that he had on his shoulder 
you know, made it so he couldn't rest. So he took the uppers and he drank the wine and he did the cigarettes and he always had to be busy and he always had to be fucking and he always had to be doing whatever it was that he was doing. But also, like, the sequence set to On Broadway is, like, maybe one of my favorite things that have ever been set to film. (laughs) That was a massive intro. Yeah. And it kind of, in a way, tells you exactly what the story's gonna be. Oh, yeah. For sure. When they had the lineup and he's, like, talking to everyone, like, oh, that shit was great. (laughs) It was, uh... Is this your home number? (laughs) Oh, my God. Such a sleaze. (laughs) Such a sleaze. Oh, man. Everyone lies. Like, you know, like... He's like, oh, yeah. He, He said it like that's just, like... The fact everyone lies. Like, oh, okay, well, thank you. If you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate us five stars, leave a review, and tell a friend to tell a friend. Follow Cat at Catchinetti on X, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Follow Marcus at Show and Mad Love S H O W I N M A D L O V on X and Letterboxd. Follow the show at Cat and Mark on X. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenlee. Thanks for listening. We should do this again sometime. This is a hyphen podcast production. Are you not entertained? Yeah!